Welcome to Making Up a Story, a podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today I'm going to be continuing our discussion of the 18th century as kind of a run-up to my final exam in about two and a half weeks, which as soon as those words came out of my mouth, I started to get really nervous because it's getting close. Uh, so the format of this mini-series is a little bit different from the last mini-series. In this mini-series, I'm going to be posing a question to myself that might be posed on the comprehensive exams, and then I'm going to answer it. Each question will be uh, focused on a particular area of interest uh, and reading, and hopefully I'll be able to sound smart enough about them for a long enough time to convince my examiners that I deserve to pass. So today I'm going to be talking about credit. And here's the question that I'm going to ask myself. If the national market in Britain really did expand in the 18th century, how did it expand if most transactions were still done by credit, which presumably requires face-to-face -face trust? So I'm going to explain this question a bit and then dig into it. Uh, first, I'm going to see if I can reformulate the terms of the question and kind of just examine why they're important. Then I'm going to explain uh, how the national market spread because of two kinds of developments in the financial system. Developments that I'm going to say created modular trust, which means the trust that you can kind of pass around from person to person, and developments that made trust legible. But in both cases, I want to insist that in the 18th century, these kinds of trust was, were still deeply embedded in day-to-day -day social life and in the social relations of the places in which they were produced. So first, I'm going to explain what makes this question important. There's two trends in the 18th century that I think are pretty unimpeachably true and which seem to be in contradiction to one another. These are that over the 18th century, the national markets started to spread. You can see this in imagining uh, markets and where the goods in these markets are coming from. In the 17th century, uh, you know, as a general rule, most markets outside of London were rather small. There were 800 market towns, each with a catchment area of about uh, 10 kilometers. Some bigger towns had bigger catchment areas. These markets would happen a couple times a week and serve mostly the you know, produce of the general area. However, in the 18th century, you start to move from market towns to a different sort of configuration where you have a rise of, in addition to markets, wholesale trading done by sample and shops that are always open. And if you imagine the catchment area for the things that are being sold, people are buying and selling stuff that are coming from much further away. When you buy stuff in even a rural market town, you might be getting coffee and tea that come indirectly from London. You might be getting agricultural produce that comes from an increasingly specialized uh, area of production, or you might just be getting your grain from slightly further away. But this development of a national market seems to not fit with another big development, which is, well, it's not a development, it's a fact, the continuation of personal credit. One of the problems of this time period is money. Not like not having enough of it. Well, not like we don't have enough money. There was literally not enough coins to go around for the economy to work. 
this was in part because of the great sucking sound of silver from China. Uh, silver was greatly valued in China more than in Europe, and so there was always a flow of silver uh, from west to east. But also it was because of some odd decisions that the British government made in the late 17th century, particularly recoining all of the coins uh, so that they were really, really high value. This meant that there were a lot fewer coins than ever before, which meant that most transactions had to take place through credit. Uh, people bought and sold uh, by, you know, mostly trusting one another. And coins were reserved for a very few number of transactions. Some estimates say 9 out of 10 transactions happened through coin. So this seems contradictory. National markets encourage the creation of anonymous abstract social forms because they depend on them. To trust your traders from London, you need to know who they are, and you can't know who they are because they're from London, and so how do you trust them? But if everything's done on credit, you need to trust everybody. So what explains the expansion of the national market and the persistence of the credit economy? One way we can square this is by flipping it around. Um, you might be able to see the persistent indebtedness caused by the credit economy as one of the reasons why the national market expanded in the first place. Because everybody was in debt all the time to one another, and even good traders could, uh, through no fault of their own, through the defaults of uh, people who they traded with, be put into big financial turmoil, people had to work harder and smarter at doing a lot of different things in order to make sure that they'd hedged all their credit bets, so that if one person in their network failed, then they would not themselves fail. And this may have pushed uh, trade outward. Uh, encouraging the development of the national market. Uh, this is a little bit like the Industrious Revolution story that we've told a couple times here. Uh, Jan de Vries's idea that before the Industrial Revolution, you had a bout of proto-industrialization in which people worked harder and longer in order to get money to buy a new set of comfortable consumer goods. Except instead of being driven by a desire for comfortable consumer goods, this is being driven by a desire to mitigate the pain of the credit economy. There's another way in which we might square this, and that relies on thinking about Ferdinand's, Ferdinand, Ferdinand, Braudel. I know how to pronounce his last name. This relies on thinking uh, with Braudel's uh, division of the economy into three parts that we've talked about a couple times. For Braudel, uh, the main part of the economy, buying and selling, happens mainly along traditional lines. Then there is another era of uh, buying and selling the market, uh, which is increasingly modernized and is subjected to faster change. And then finally, at the very top of things, um, relatively small is a percentage of absolute transactions, but with more power, there is the capitalist economy, which deals with money. In this view of things, the persistence of the credit economy as the national market expands is no mystery because the uh, credit economy happens at that lowest level of everyday life. The market economy, which is you know, expanding nationally, 
is run along different kinds of logic, which increasingly have other kinds of instruments uh, to square debts, not just paying in money. Furthermore, the development of the capitalist economy is disconnected from both the everyday economy and the market economy and doesn't need money at all. It creates its own financial instruments. That's one potential way that we can square this. But I find this a little bit, uh, well, unsatisfactory because there's a persistence even in the market economy and even in capitalism on face-to-face, -face, what we might call embedded social relations. And to talk about that, I'm going to discuss uh, two developments in uh, maybe we could call it the market economy and uh, capitalism, but we don't need to stick with the Brodellian uh, 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 division of this, which show that even though we can trace developments of new kinds of financial instruments that help to burgeon national markets, there's still an underlying face-to-face -face element that remains really important in a way that we kind of don't expect if we tell a story of the inevitable rise of capitalism. So the first set of things that I want to talk about is uh, what I'm calling modular trust instruments. One of the problems of uh, doing long distance transactions and of trading between multiple people is that it's hard to trust people. You don't know exactly what uh, your neighbor is going to do over the next year, but you trust him enough that you might extend credit for a year because you know his family, you know that things couldn't be that bad, and you can see him working every single day. It's much harder to trust your neighbor's brother or your neighbor's brother's banker. But a lot of financial transactions require this kind of extended networks of trust. And so there's a long-term story that we can tell of the developments of financial instruments that allow trust to be passed from person to person with minimum transaction costs. These uh, Transactions are legible, stable, and what I call modular. You can, you know, move them from person to person with minimal hassle. Um, an example of how this doesn't happen is in early stocks. Early stocks and things like the East India Company were actually really hard to sell. You had to go to a bank and get them rewritten and like some things couldn't be sold and each individual stock was uh, actually individually negotiated and they were actually really hard to pass on. So we have maybe three long-term developments and by long-term I mean say 1688 to 1870. First, specie by which we mean coins that actually are worth something slowly become token coins. Uh, coins that are just tokens of value rather than actual stores of value. Then instead of getting uh, multi-name bills of exchange, which are kind of like a check that people pass along um, in lieu of money, we get the development of banknotes, first issued by the Bank of England and then issued by uh, provincial uh, banks as well. And these we can think of as proto-paper money, except they had a lot of transaction costs. They were harder to judge. People would pass them on at a discount because they didn't trust one another. And um, sometimes you couldn't make sure that the banknote that you were getting was actually being drawn on a bank that you could trust. Finally, you get changes in banking. 
um, development of branch banking and joint stock banking are the two big things. We can also discuss the uh, creation of markets for stocks and bonds, but I want to insist that this is not a tale of unimpeded improvement um, driven by, uh, you know, financial modernizers who are looking to make a modern economy in Britain. Nobody knew what a modern economy was. They weren't working towards that. Instead, a lot of this story is driven by the um, individual negotiations between the Bank of England and the state. You see, the Bank of England had a monopoly on um, banking within the metropolis. It was the only joint stock company um, bank that could be allowed. Uh, it um, was the only company that was allowed to issue banknotes with the, within, I think, 60 miles of London. It was given a bunch of monopolies in exchange for funding and dealing with government debt. But every once in a while, the bank's charter would come up for reevaluation, and the bank and the state would have some sort of negotiation. And this is the cause of a lot of these developments, like um, the development of branch banking and the expansion of joint stock banking out to provincial banks. This wasn't the Bank of England trying to create a rational economy. It was the Bank of England trying to do something that economists call rent-seeking. It was trying to preserve its control over the national economy. And we can see this perhaps most clearly in the failure of the banking system to really develop in the 18th century. We look here at goldsmith bankers, which are kind of minor private bankers who uh, deal in gold, but also because of that uh, lend money out to people. Now, gold, looking at goldsmith bankers, we see that they actually um, are not lending money to everybody that they should be lending money to. And there's a lot of institutional constraints on why they do this. First, there's an interest rate ceiling of 5% caused by the usury law. They cannot charge interest over 5%. Um, there's also a rule limiting banks to having only six partners. Um, of course, there's a monopoly on note issue by the Bank of England. Um, there's also restrictions on chartering. Finally, there's just not as much spare cash around to invest. That is because during times of war, the government asked for a lot of capital. It needed a lot of money to invest in bonds, you know, to fill the uh, fiscal military state. And because of that, during times of war, government borrowing crowded out private borrowing. All of this added up to the fact that goldsmith banks limited who they gave money to. They only gave money to privileged groups of people. Credit was rationed, even when it would have made a very good economic sense to extend credit to people, just because uh, there were so many risks attended to lending. And now I want to talk about a development I'm calling creating legible trust, creating forms of trust between people that other people can read. And as those words came out of my mouth, I started to think through it more, and I think that this might be just another species of creating modular trust. Um, so I don't think that this um, organization is going to help me much in the exams. But uh, I'm going to continue talking through some examples because I think that they're cool. Um, so let's talk about uh, the development of the stock market. Um, we oftentimes 
have the development of the stock market as a point in this inevitable production of a frictionless, low transaction cost financial situation. But in the 18th century, that wasn't entirely the case. I've already mentioned a reason why. Um, so stocks in the big uh, joint stock companies that you could invest in, the East India Company, the Bank of England, uh, in some points the South Sea Company, were actually really hard to trade in some sorts of situations. Furthermore, studies, detailed studies of actual stock trading practices in the early 18th century show that they're not entirely economically rational. People who are trading stocks in London are doing so not just to get financial gain, but also to control the companies that they're trading stocks in. And they do this by creating networks of political agents who uh, they trade within. So if you're a Whig, you want to trade only with Whigs. And this is because all of the joint stock companies actually have political affiliations. And people of those particular political affiliations want to keep ownership of the company within the political party. And so the East India Company um, is mixed between um, Whigs and Tories. Uh, the South Sea Company is dominated by Tories. And the Bank of England is dominated by Whigs. And when Whigs are trading uh, uh, Bank of England stock, they're wary to trade to Tories. This is not economically rational. This is not a story of um, the logic of the market overcoming the logic of face-to-face -face interaction. Perhaps a more concrete way of seeing the slow changes involved in this is to look at changing ideas around personal indebtedness. Now, one of the real cruelties of the credit market is that it was capricious. If one person in a network of credit failed, which they sometimes did, everybody might be washed up, or many people might be washed up. Even if you didn't have a failure, if somebody called in all of their debts on you, there's a good chance that you might not be able to pay. This created a whole bunch of uh, attitudes and practices to prop up people's respect for one another so that they wouldn't think that they were insolvent. But it also led to a lot of debt, a lot of misfortune. And in the early 18th century, this debt was understood not as personal failure, but rather as just misfortune, as an accident that could happen to people. But as the national market expanded and there was a more um, moralizing going on about the nature of the market, slowly debt became something shameful, something that people interpreted like poverty as something that was caused by personal failings. Um, there's a book by Margot Finn that looks at this by looking at the changing notion of debtors' prisons. Debtors' prisons begin as places to keep people in debt safe from their creditors, to allow them safe spaces where they're legally kind of outside the bounds of the law, where they can work and trade and live without being hounded by their creditors for a while. At the end of the 18th century, they become a place of punishment. So right now I'm sitting here looking at all of this, uh, the, the way that the episode's been structured, the facts that I've brought to bear on it, and I have this, I, I'm torn. 
because there's obviously a lot more work that I can do on this subject. Obviously, halfway through, I realized that the way that I divided um, the bulk of my um, analysis was kind of flawed. And so part of me wants to go back, reread some of these books, take more notes, reframe some things, think it all through. But then another part of me goes, I've just recorded 20 minutes on this, and in the exam, I'm just going to need to give a tight two. Maybe I have enough for a tight two. And then I think of all the days that I have left and all of the other things I need to do, and I just kind of shrug my shoulders. We'll find out later if there will be a sequel to this, uh, uh, you know, Credit and Debt Part 2. Uh, or if I move on to better and brighter things. Um, thanks very much for listening to Making of a Historian. If you have questions, comments, uh, shoot them to me at, at Mackie Teacher, M-E-C-K-I-E, Teacher, uh, on Twitter. Uh, some people have been tweeting about the show, which is kind of cool. Um, you can tweet about us, too. Uh, be sure to include a link. Historian.live is a good link to uh, point people to. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Share us on social media. Do all of those things that you do to the things that you like on the internet. Um, we're kind of small here, so if you like the show and you share us, you might be doubling our audience. Um, Thanks very much to Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. Um, I'll speak to you guys tomorrow about more stuff about the 18th century. Bye.